Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the official podcast of the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. We're recording this in early August 2020, and in case you haven't heard, there's a presidential election happening. The fourth year of any administration is an interesting and challenging time as the administration, especially a first term where they don't know if they'll get a second term, uh, the administration is racing to do as much as they can before the end of the term, knowing that another administration might come in and undo the work that they did. And so at this moment, there could be no two better people to bring onto the show than my friends Bridget Dooling and Philip Wallach for their perspectives on where we are in terms of the current regulatory agenda and what might happen in the months to come. Bridget Dooling is a research professor with George Washington University's Regulatory Studies Center. She previously served in the White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, which we'll be discussing a lot today. She was deputy chief and an attorney and a senior policy analyst. She's also a senior fellow at the Administrative Conference of the United States, a federal advisory body on regulatory agencies' procedures. Bridget, thanks for joining us. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me on. And Philip Wallach is a senior fellow at the R Street Institute, where he researches America's separation of powers with a focus on the relationship between Congress and the administrative state. He recently worked in the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. And before joining R Street, he was a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Bill, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Let me start, Bridget, with a very broad question. We're here halfway through the fourth term of a presidential administration. What sorts of things happen at this point in an administration, both in the White House and in the agencies, as they go along with the regulatory process? Yeah, that's right. We're taping this just under three months away from the 2020 presidential election, so it's a timely topic. Um, so in my experience, the election at the end of a president's first term has more uncertainty than the election at the end of a second in terms of the regulatory apparatus that that president is bringing to bear. So in the second term, a president's second term, he knows, he or she knows that his presidency is coming to an end and can direct his or her resources accordingly. And you'll see more talk about issues like legacy. Um, you'll see preparation for what we call the midnight period, which we can talk more about if you'd like. And then perhaps even a public memo that directs agencies to wrap it up to to finish working on what they're working on so that within the president's term, the second term, all of that business can be concluded before the next president comes in. In the first term, though, there's usually some discomfort with acknowledging that a second term might not come. Um, and that does tend to encourage a president to continue to launch or propose new initiatives, and that includes rules. But in the Trump administration, there was some reporting last year by Cheryl Bolin of Bloomberg that suggested that the administration had achieved what it was trying to achieve in terms of deregulation, which was surprising to me, given how important the deregulatory mission has been for this presidency. Um, so I've wondered actually whether it feels like a hybrid of both right now for folks on the inside, um, a hybrid of both sort of phenomena that occur at the end of a first term and end of a second term. Um, I also think the pandemic likely has a big influence on the pace and content of rulemaking because of just so many exigencies that I'm sure we'll talk more about today. 
Yeah, we definitely will. Just one more question, Bridget. I know you and your colleagues at the GWU Regulatory Study Center, you keep a close eye on what's coming out of the agencies, not just the rules, but also you're often giving updates on the, the unified agenda and other things. Uh, not to put you on the spot, I don't know how closely you followed this in the run-up to this year, but I'm just curious whether you or your colleagues got any kind of sense of whether the administration, whatever it was saying publicly, what was being reported, was it was it acting as though it was gearing up for you know, trying to wrap things up in, in this in in this year? I mean, was there a real urgency in in the unified agenda to to complete things, or or did it seem like sort of business as usual? Maybe that's a vague question. I don't know if it, there's an easy way to answer that. No, I think um, that's a good question. I mean, I think it helps actually to to bucket rules into deregulatory and regulatory buckets. So I would say. That the most recent um, agenda, which is a 12-month future-looking document that says, you know, 12 months from now, what do we hope to have done? What's our plan for the next 12 months? If you look at the deregulatory actions in there, most of the bigger ones had already been concluded, right? So there wasn't very much on the forward-looking docket for big, big new deregulatory actions, particularly new proposals. Um, on the other hand, on the regulatory side of the ledger, there was more. So about two agenda cycles ago, the ratio flipped from, when you look at the big rules, from mostly planning to do deregulatory actions to mostly planning to do regulatory actions, sort of affirmative new regulatory requirements. So although the initial uh, rounds of the agenda in the Trump administration had more of a deregulatory flavor. These, this last couple of rounds has been uh, more regulatory in nature. So it, to the extent that there are new proposals moving forward, those have more of a regulatory than deregulatory flair. Now, for those who want to stay current on these things, my guess is a lot of our audience already knows this, but if they don't already, you really should sign up for the, the, the weekly updates that the Regulatory Center Study Center at G George Washington puts out. Bridget and her colleagues put out this amazing compendium every week of the things that are coming out of the agencies, out of the administration, and commentary. It's really indispensable. Um, Bridget, one last thing. Given, given that you're an OIRA veteran, I'm just very curious. At this stage in administration, is OIRA acting simply passively, just receiving the rules that, that come in and analyzing them? Or does OIRA play a role in, in trying to give some urgency to the agency to, to complete what it's working on? Does it, does it push or nudge at all? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I mean, in my experience, it depends on how the president wants to use OIRA. It can use OIRA to help coordinate regulatory activity, or it can have OIRA in more of a passive role, so just receiving what an agency sends. Um, so that's a choice for the incumbent president to make about how he wants to use OIRA at, in a managerial way. Now, uh, while I'm promoting uh, reading material, in addition to the, the, the Regulatory Study Center newsletter, another great place to look for commentary is at the Brookings Institute's uh, Center on Regulation and Markets, where they have a series of reports titled The Series on Regulatory Process and Perspective. I think both of you have actually contributed to that. I, um, and I know Philip has because I'm about to refer to one of his recent articles. Uh, he and his colleague Shoshana Weissman recently published a piece about a month and a half ago titled Taking Stock of COVID-19 Deregulation. And obviously, as Bridget indicated, that has really complicated the fourth year of, of a regulatory agenda. The fact that they're in their fourth year while at the same time grappling with COVID-19, which the, the, a crisis that has triggered 
certainly lots of regulatory action as the administration tries to grapple with the problem, but at the same time, deregulatory actions intended to help um, help amplify the economic recovery that's needed in light of the COVID outbreak. So, Philip, why don't you sketch out your, what, the arguments or the findings you made in that, that article? How is the administration grappling with um, its COVID-19 deregulatory effort at this point? Sure. So I think there's a, a lot going on um, during these past four months. What a whirlwind it's been. Um, and I think some people have wanted to say uh, the Trump administration has been advancing its deregulatory agenda, which it's had all along and, and not really been uh, addressing the problem directly. Um Using using the pandemic as a kind of distraction to push push across what it what it really wants to do uh, out of the public eye. I think those those criticisms are are, are mostly misguided. I, I think obviously there have been a few big deregulatory changes that really don't have anything to do with fighting uh, coronavirus, uh, such as the safer, affordable, fuel efficient vehicles rule. The safer rule um, that was one of the biggest regulatory initiatives of this whole administration, changes the fuel economy standards for cars, and came out after the pandemic became the biggest news story in the world uh, around the end of March, I believe. Um, so some some of this is just deregulation that happens to have gone on during the pandemic because because they wanted to get it done before the end of this administration and also not in the time where the Congressional Review Act might bite. So that first part of 2020 is really the sweet spot for putting out some of the administration's biggest priorities. Um, so that's one category of, of things that things that were just in the pipeline and got finished up during during the pandemic time. Um, the second category are a lot of changes that, that are sometimes described as deregulatory, but really are just a, a lot of attempts for the government to cope with the challenges of the pandemic, just like any other organization has to cope with the pandemic. Um, so there's a lot of moving to telework, uh, you know, which people are are likely to see as benign, but there's also sometimes sort of a diminution of, of regular uh, enforcement functions. So there was an EPA memo that got some amount of criticism um, that was saying certain things that would normally have to happen in person, um, re normally required sampling, monitoring, reporting, or training exercises. Um, could be suspended during the pandemic. You know, if people want to, are really determined to see that as nefarious, I suppose they can, but that seems to me like a pretty commonsensical way to deal with these difficult conditions. Um, then, as you said, there's, there's a lot of deregulation targeting the pandemic itself. And so you could think of that in the public health aspect, and you, or you could think about it in the, the economic recovery aspect. And, and in both of those areas, the, the administration has been very active. So um, one of the biggest success stories, I would say, uh, is this 
meteoric rise of telehealth in the last half year, where a lot of different parts of the regulatory state ha have worked hard to get out of the way of telehealth and make billing for telehealth possible in a way that it never was before. Um, and, and I think there's good reason to hope that some of those changes might might stick. Um, I think you've seen a, a lot of attempts to make it easier to manufacture personal protective equipment, um, which initially ran into a lot of regulatory barriers. It was hard to set up new factories to produce masks because there's so many regulations about um, what's what's required to do that. Um, so I, I think there has been a, a lot of uh, a lot of actions. The president, uh, in a speech last month, said that there had been 720 deregulatory actions taken across his administration. Uh, in coping with the pandemic. A lot of those have been public health related. A lot of other ones are uh, designed to help help the economy get through things. So, uh, you know, various professional licensing regimes need to change to adapt to the fact that it's hard for people to do uh, some of the, some of the kinds of testing or, or, or uh, compliance that they would have done in the past. All sorts of changes. Um, I think there's a question then of how much of this is going to remain permanent. Um, I think the president has been pushing for the idea, well, if, it, if the deregulation was good during pandemic time, why not just keep it? Why not just let people continue to have that freedom that they gained during this time? I think that would take a whole nother round of rulemaking because an, an awful lot of what's gone on has happened through emergency measures, which are specifically time bound and were able to circumvent the normal notice and comment rulemaking process because they were billed as, as temporary actions um, to run concurrent with the public health crisis or to expire on date certain. Um, so I, I think it'll be interesting to see how much the Trump administration does move to try to make permanent a lot of these changes. Presumably, if they did that, those changes would be uh, in that Congressional Review Act window where, you know, if we had a, a Biden presidency with a united Democratic Congress, um, they would be in a position to overturn a, a lot of those changes. You know, it's interesting. You described along the way two groups that disagree on a lot, but agree on one thing. You said there are those who criticize some of the temporary deregulatory efforts, maybe with respect to environmental compliance, um, saying, you know, just because there's this crisis doesn't justify the, the you know, allowing a greater threat to the environment. Um, you have the people who say, well, if these regulations aren't justifiable during the crisis, they're probably not justifiable in normal times either, right, from the deregulatory side. It seems there's both the pro-regulatory and deregulatory people, not, I mean, there are some on both sides who um, want to sort of take the crisis as being basically normal from a regulatory perspective. I think I think the real challenge is to, to identify those places where normal regulatory enforcement might not be justifiable for this brief moment of crisis and initial economic recovery and to calibrate enforcement accordingly. That was a, a an approach I called for in an op-ed feels like a very long time ago. 
um, that the, the right balance to strike would be to just temporarily recalibrate enforcement in some targeted ways, recognizing that the normal rules were probably justified before and are probably justified after the crisis and that the crisis doesn't really disprove their value. But I, I digress. Bridget, you mentioned the, the impact that COVID-19 was, was having um, on the, the current regulatory and deregulatory agenda. What's your general sense of the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think where we are now is we're in a period of, of trying to sort of game out, you know, which which of these regulatory flexibilities are worth keeping around. And that's that's what you all were just discussing. Um, I, I think there's actually a set of them. There's certainly a set of them that, you know, are more polarizing than others. But I do think there's there's actually a pretty sizable chunk of them. And I think around telehealth is is one area where you know, removing barriers to telehealth just seems like a really good thing to do in general going forward. And so why wouldn't you want to capture those benefits, you know, moving forward? So I actually think this is a moment for some coalition building around sensible reforms, um, which is not to say that everything that's being relaxed right now should be relaxed indefinitely, right? It's saying that there's probably a subset of those. And my hope um is that we're actually in the process of gathering data to justify those changes, right? We are in a very special moment here. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of the relaxations that allow for easier access to opioid addiction treatment right now. There's been a whole suite of, of actions, both from HHS and DEA, to make it easier for patients to um, enroll in and then continue to receive opioid addiction treatment services. That is good for public health. And so, you know, yes, there are always concerns, countervailing concerns about making it easier to access the drugs that we use for addiction treatment programs. On the other hand, you know, we're in a moment here where we can learn a tremendous amount if we're gathering the data with an eye towards that to, to you know, play out whether these flexibilities actually can benefit folks for the long run without uh, posing significant risks of their own. So I hope this is a moment when in the middle of standing up all kinds of flexibilities and new services, folks are gathering data, you know, and to, to allow us to reflect on this period and think and have, the, have that data inform what we do going forward, not just kind of a, a partisan or ideological instinct that more regulation is is good or bad, right? Like if we can actually get to the substance of these, I think it would help us build a coalition um, to to enshrine some of those going forward. That's a great point. I guess I ought to be careful in the way I've, I've phrased my own point too, right? The key is not that we shouldn't learn from these things, quite the opposite. We definitely do need to learn from experience and it might cast old rules in new light, but the key is to really look at what, what, what the facts are teaching us in this crisis. Now, now as, as you mentioned earlier, Bridget, in, in the last year of an administration, one of the things um, that the administration has to grapple with is the Congressional Review Act. That clock, I, I suppose that, that door is closed now, right? Any rules that are finalized from here on out, I think, would be subject to the possible Congressional Review Act review by the next Congress. The, the, the actual the, the impact of COVID-19 on Congress, its own operations, really scrambled this a bit, right? Because to the extent that COVID-19 prevented Congress from meeting on certain days, that would push back the calendar. Of That's right. Or, or no, it would push forward the, I it guess. Could, I, it could really confuse yourself talking about the CRA. There's so many rabbit holes to go yeah. down. Um, 
it's very much a galaxy brain type of, of calculation. But can, can you unconfuse this for me? I, I would give it a go. So yes, there is a window of time that you calculate for for which rules are in what I call the zone of jeopardy for the CRA. These are the rules that. Um, you know, the next Congress, the Congress that is installed in, in January 2021, that that Congress could use the CRA disapproval tools on. So it's not all rules ever, right? It's bounded by a time period. And that time period is calculated using a very technical, I'll say Byzantine uh, calculation that um, many, 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 many pages have been written about in terms of how to do it. So I won't get into the details of it, but it relates more, it's not calendar days. It relates more to uh, when um, the different chambers of Congress are are in session. And so there's folks who have done the math on this. Um, but the punchline is you don't really know when the window opens until after it's closed. <laughs> so we are likely in the, the window of jeopardy right now for the CRA, it, it, our best estimate. And it's not mine. It's um, it's by the good folks at um, at AAF. They do a, a nice calculation on this. Their best estimate is that it's uh, May 13th, 2020 is when the CRA window opened. But if Congress, say, cancels August recess, right, the Senate and the House are in session more than expected in August, you would expect that window to shrink, meaning it could slip forward past May 13th, perhaps even into June, depending on how Congress organizes itself this fall. So the, what you need to know is that the more Congress meets, the more it's in session, the more the, the, more the CRA window is gonna shrink, meaning apply to fewer rules. Uh, but our best guess right now is that it opened on May 13th, excuse me, May 13th, meaning that any rule issued since May 13th is in the CRA zone of jeopardy. But that also presumes that the, that the president loses, that the Senate flips and that the House keeps its its um, Democratic majority starting January 2021. So a lot of stars need to align to make the CRA disapproval tool really salient. Um, but because we are in a phase where that could happen, it's definitely something to watch coming down these next few months. Now, the, the midnight rule trend and, and the issue of, of the Congressional Review Act, that happens every four years. That's that's nothing new. But I can think of three interesting wrinkles this year. I'm just, I don't know. These are, I'm just test driving them myself, so if they're crazy, let me know. But, but one is that with the Congressional Review Act, if we do get a Democratic uh, president and Senate and House, it will be in a position to um, nullify some deregulatory rules. And the impact of the Congressional Review Act is that if, if a, a rule is voted, is nullified with a CRA resolution, the agency can't repromulgate it in substantially similar form without new legislation. And we haven't really seen how that works with the deregulatory rule, right? Does it mean that the agency now has a new floor underneath it? It it, it, it has to regulate at a certain level or above because it can't repromulgate the deregulatory rule, right? It basically codifies whatever regulatory um, framework was in place before the deregulatory rule. So that's that's one interesting wrinkle we might be looking ahead at. Um, the second... Yeah. Is let me let me get all three on the table. Um, the second one in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision in the the DACA case, the the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals case, President Trump had a, a sort of an interesting spin on that case. Axios reported that he thought the upshot of the DACA case, since the Supreme Court had prevented him from rolling back the DACA rule that President Obama had put into place 
President Trump was reported as concluding, well, this means that I can roll out all sorts of new policies, too, without going through notice and comment. And I think he suggested policies on health care immigration. And the next administration would have to go through a much greater process to roll them back, like the Supreme Court is requiring me to do with DACA. I mean, I disagree with that framing of the opinion, but the upshot of it is President Trump's version of midnight rules might be profoundly different than other midnight rules we've had in the past, if he, if, if that's the lesson he's drawing from the DACA case. So there's that interesting intersection of the usual midnight rule thing with his understanding of the DACA case. And then the last thing I'll throw on the table is, in addition to midnight rules, I wonder if we'll see midnight interpretations. The Supreme Court, in its latest case on deference, the, the Kaiser versus Wilkie case, said that they were going to give more deference to interpretations that are sort of longstanding and unbroken, right? And, uh, and they were focusing on an agency's interpretation of its own rules. Well, that creates an incentive for agencies to throw out a lot of new interpretations at the end of the administration, right? To sort of get them out there on the record so that the next administration um, has that sort of check mark against it in their own interpretations, Right. If they want to create a new interpretation of a of a rule, um, they now if, if the first administration, the outgoing one can kind of get its its interpretation on record. It under it might undermine the deference that future administrations get in a contrary interpretation. So those are just three issues I've been noodling on lately. I don't think I've ever mentioned any of them to you, th to either of you before. So feel free to, to either ignore them or, or or tell me they're crazy. But I'd be curious if you have any reactions. Uh, I have a few thoughts. Uh, I mean, on the substantially similar thing, your number one point, I think we just have no idea how that would play out in practice. It's really never been tested. We don't really know if it's judicially enforceable or whether it's only congressionally enforceable. And I think at some point, some some agency is going to say, all right, well, we'll we'll go ahead and see just how enforceable this is. So that day may well be coming if if the stars align um, and we see another round of, of CRAs and then another change of administration in the future, we'll, we'll see. Um, I think the, I want to zoom out a little bit from your other particulars just to say, you know, we have a pendulum in policy that we just ex expect to some extent, right? When we have a change of administration, uh, change of party control in the White House, we know that Whichever party controls the executive branch has a great deal of power to set policy. And so when we switch from one part to the other, there's going to be a swing of the pendulum. And that's sort of got to be one of the most predictable features of, of American political life and policy life at this point. Um, and so I think, you know, you can, you can come up with all sorts of ways that each that each side is going to try to push the pendulum a little bit farther with their with their dying breath, as it were. Uh, but you know, the next that just that's just going to create a, a few more tasks for the next for the next folks to deal with. And that seems like kind of the nature of the game at this point. Um, you know, it has a lot to do with what the the next administration's lawyers will will have to spend their time arguing about. But I. You'd 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 be hard pressed to convince me that that's sort of likely to be the the thing substantively defining where policy will ultimately end up. Yeah, that's interesting. 
on your um substantially the same point I, I think it's an overread like definitely that term is has not been tested in court although there have been two rules that have been issued following a, disappro a CRA disapproval so we we had the opportunity to have, see some litigation on this but as far as I'm aware none has been filed um, so there, there have at least been two instances when we could have learned something about this and I would have liked it if we had um, I do think it's an overread of that prohibition to say that if a CRA, if a disapproval action attaches to something that's deregulatory in character, that any possible deregulation in that zone for the future is substantially the same. I, that to me, that's an overread of what that means. I can think of lots of different ways to deregulate something or regulate something that couldn't that you know just because it has some of the same keywords doesn't mean that the method is substantially the same so uh, maybe i'm a little bit more comfortable with that risk it doesn't I, I think we can sort of put too much of a cloud over legal standards like this and chill so much behavior at some point someone's got to give it a go right so i'm, I'm sure we'll see it especially if we see more use of the of the cra in the coming years um and yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this and the, the question of who gets to define what and when and how sticky is that definition. So there's this question of the first mover advantage, right? Like who gets who, who goes first, who, whose words matter the most. And, you know, striking to me in the DACA decision was the, the role of reliance, the reliance interest test. And so I think it's worth keeping an eye on that, you know, if, if there, if a large number of people end up having some sort of reliance interest in a policy that seems like it's going to matter. So, and I don't think you can necessarily, maybe you can, maybe you can come up with any group that's going to have some kind of reliance interest, but how significant is that interest? How worthy of protection is that interest in tension with other goals of government? So, um, that's that's what I've been thinking about that. But yeah, it is tricky. I mean, anything that comes out soon that's an interpretation um, that isn't in a regulation is going to be less durable um, than a regulation would be. And as you say, we're sort of winding down. If, if the president only has one term, we're basically winding down on his ability to come up with rules with staying power. Um, now, if he gets a second term, that's different, right? You get four more years to propose and finalize things and rules. That makes it a lot harder to undo on the back end. The reliance interest side of things, which, you know, it was it came up in the DACA case, and it's not new. It came up in the, oh, in the, one of the Fox, the FCC versus Fox cases um, about agencies changing policy. The court sort of flagged the problem of reliance. I mean, in some ways, the reliance issue becomes so circular Right, because it has to be just, you know, you'll weigh the, whether the reliance was justifiable. The whole area of regulatory takings sort of went into a black hole on these on reliance interests and background principles of law. And I wonder if these Supreme Court cases aren't setting up something similar. And, and why also shouldn't there be reliance interests considered in the initial rulemaking? Until, you know, before there's a rule, everybody's sort of relying on the fact that there isn't a rule. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. And I'm actually, I think, more conducive to Roberts's opinion for the court in the DACA case than than a, a lot of my my friends are. Um, Philip, let me ask you. Let me change the subject and ask one last question. You were you were quoted recently um, in recent weeks in a Real Clear Politics article by Philip Wegman about the state of the Trump administration's deregulatory agenda. Um, I guess I was quoted too. Um, but you said along the way 
that I wish I had the exact quote right in front of me. I did a moment ago. You said that there was, you said that the administration's deregulation rhetoric has sometimes outrun its actual achievements. Could you give us a sense of what you meant by that and, and your general sense of the Trump administration's deregulatory agenda overall? Sure. Um, I don't mean to belittle what they've done. I think that they've made this a real priority and, and they've made a lot of progress. I think the whole regime that they've set up under Executive Order 13771, the regulatory budget, has a lot to be said for it. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff that's gone on on the deregulatory front that, that I'm a fan of. That being said, the way the president talks about this stuff is as if he's fundamentally reoriented American government and liberated the American people from this crushing pile of burdens and the, we're never going to be the same again. Everything's different. And I just don't see it. I just don't see it that way. I, I think that's, that's really overstating the case. Uh, I, I think um, even when we just think about um, coronavirus pandemic and the, the deregulatory responses to that, you know, I, I, I think there, there's been a lot of good stuff done and I, and I applaud that good stuff. But when you think about how much have we managed to totally reorient the federal government to a massive mobilization effort? How much have we, you know, taken all the barriers and just swept them away and figured out ways to mobilize massive production? I mean, he's talked about ventilators as if, as if, you know, it's like the landing craft for World War II and it's, it's such a great victory. Well, that's ventilators which have turned out to be less important than they looked like they were back in, in March. And, and when you look across the board, I think we just haven't been that impressively dynamic in responding to this crisis. We haven't reinvented the way that the federal government works. When I think about if, if there's a Biden administration in 2021, how much will they have to re-reinvent the government? Well, not really all that much. They're going to be able to pick up where President Obama left off in a lot of cases. The Trump administration sort of hit the pause button on a lot of issues in a way that really none of their predecessors ever had. They sort of ground some of regulatory proceedings to a halt, and that was different. But uh, with the exception of a bunch of Obama policies, it's not like they took us to a whole different world. The, the regulatory state sort of mostly stands unbowed. And so that's that's what I mean by saying that, because when you listen to uh, some of what the president says about what he's done with regulation, you'd think we live in an entirely different country. Uh, Bridget, I'll let you have the last word on, on all the things we, we've discussed uh, today. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just to wrap up on sort of hyperbole of how this all gets messaged. I mean, I think at the beginning of the president's term, he was talking about returning us to 1960s levels of regulation. And to do that, to, to have something that ambitious, you would actually need to work with Congress to renegotiate the, the dozens of statutes that govern the rules that agencies issued 
since 1960, right? But from the start, this this deregulatory initiative took that off the table. It was entirely limited to those things within the president's control. There's pragmatic reasons to limit um, a presidential initiative to those things that the executive can control. But when you do that, you really clip the wings of something of an initiative to go back and, and take on those big lifts like that. So this never had a chance to return us to 1960s levels. I don't know if I want us to be at 1960 levels of regulation, right? But the point is that's what the president said he was taking us towards. And, and there was just no way even from the start that he could have because of the way his own initiative uh, was limited. Well, obviously so much of what we discussed today, looking ahead to the future, will turn on the outcome of the election. Hopefully, I'll be able to convince you both to come back in a few months after the election to talk either about how to remember uh, President Trump's one-term legacy in regulatory reform or to look ahead to a second term of a two-term presidency and think about what President Trump might do in the four years to come. Either way, I'm so grateful that you could join us today for this conversation. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious.